The uh, New Testament reading is taken from 1 Titus, verses 10 to 16. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced, since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in their faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who run away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray again. Father, we know today, even as we've read in your gospel, that you desire us to be ruled by your word. And so we recognize you today as the heavenly speaker as we open the pages of scripture. And we ask now for the inspiration and the unction of your Holy Spirit to make us receptive uh, to your word, that it might be planted deep within our hearts, O oh God, so that like your son, Jesus Christ, we might be given to obedience. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, not every, uh, we're looking at Titus 1 today, continuing on in Titus 1, 10 to 16. And not every congregation in the New Testament bears the same kind of commendation by the apostle. Some churches, when we read, vex Paul deeply, like the congregations at Galatia and the congregation at Corinth. Some congregations stir up in Paul a deep sense of hope and excitement like the church at Rome. And some churches cause Paul to well up with overflowing gratitude and thanksgiving like the church at Philippi. But the church at Crete seems to be altogether different, afflicted as it was by all of these many troublemakers. In fact, apart from the brief greeting at the end of the letter, those who, quote, love us in the faith, implying that there are many who do not love Paul and who do not love his co-workers, apart from this fleeting acknowledgement in this letter, there is nothing that Paul has to say with respect to good about the church at Crete. He simply doesn't commend it at all. The letter is full of somber instruction, and when Paul says to Titus in chapter 2.15, let no one disregard you, Titus, you get a strong sense that the climate for Titus was very difficult indeed at this church in Crete. And in our passage today, Paul continues to outline the corrosive culture that has permeated uh, this particular church and this, uh, this group of churches. There are people, he says in verse 16, that profess to know God. These are people who are identifying with the church. They are not the pagan outsiders in Greek. 
These are people who identify as Christians, but in reality, even though they identify with the church, they are far from it. And then Paul uses these three strong words to describe these people within the church. They are detestable, they are disobedient, they are unfit for any good work. Now, can pastors get away with using that kind of language today, I wonder? Detestable, disobedient, unfit. These aren't words for those outside of the church. These are words for those within. And this is a judgment on the church by man of the gospel. The bearer of the good news comes necessarily with an awful lot of bad news. He's commissioned to give it. Now, isn't it interesting that in chapter 3, looking ahead just a little bit, chapter 3, verse 2, Paul enjoins Titus to remind people to speak evil of no one and to show perfect courtesy towards all people. And yet the injunction, that injunction, doesn't preclude Paul from calling a good number of people in this Cretan church detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Neither does it preclude Paul from speaking disparagingly of Cretan culture. Paul says what the Cretans have said of themselves is true. They are always liars. They are evil beasts. They are gluttons. Paul 1.13, this testimony, he says, is true. Now, in short, Titus is in a very difficult and in a challenging spot. And from the sounds of things... Titus has been dropped into a church context that is largely against him, and he's in the midst of great and decided opposition. And so Paul tells him in chapter 2, verse 15, looking slightly ahead, Timothy, you need to exhort and you need to rebuke with all authority, given the difficulty of the context. Well, easier said than done, isn't it? Titus clearly has a long uphill battle ahead of him in Crete. And in the midst of this, Titus serves as a pattern for all of those he would hand off the baton to. Charles Simeon, some of you may know the name, he was perhaps the greatest preacher that the Church of England has ever produced, bar none, the 18th century evangelical Anglican minister. And in 1783... Charles Simeon became the rector at Holy Trinity Church, Cambridge, a church that was in the very heart of the university there. And Simeon had this great dream, this great vision of reaching the university for Christ and for all of these students. But at the beginning of his ministry, 1783, he enters into the living of Holy Trinity. From the very beginning, Simeon encounters this decided antagonism from his own church. The people of Holy Trinity refused to acknowledge Simeon's leadership. Now, back in those days, the pews had these high walls to them, and you could rent pews for a certain amount of money, and they were yours. And no one else could sit there. And the sides you could lock, so no one else could could get in. And when Simeon came in protest of their new pastor, they locked their pews because they didn't like what he was preaching, especially they didn't like all this talk about sin. Simeon's vision for the church was threefold, to humble the sinner, to exalt the Savior, and to promote holiness. (laughs) 
Well, they didn't like that too much. And so they locked their pews and they boycotted the services. And so Simeon went and he put benches in the aisles so that people would have somewhere to sit. And guess what they did? The people, the pew owners, took those benches, they threw them out into the street. For 10 years, these people largely boycotted the services. They would throw filth and rotten vegetables at him. There's one, at least one account of Simeon walking out with rotten eggs streaming down his face. And for 10 years, the people of Holy Trinity, if they wanted to hear him preach, had to stand in order to enter into divine worship. 10 years. See, the book of Titus reminds us that Men like Charles Simeon, what they walk through, it's not atypical. It's the pattern. It's the pattern of the church to come against people that are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for any good good work. The church, Titus tells us, is a battleground. And we should expect nothing else. Well, specifically today, uh, Paul tells Titus that he must battle those who, among other things, are teaching that godliness and the spiritual life has more to do with abstinence from certain creaturely gifts than with anything else. Now, we heard last week that there was a kind of legalism that was confusing justification, being counted right with God, confusing this with things that we do. And we heard last week that legalism ultimately tends to pull us away from the moral law. It doesn't pull us towards it. The Pharisees are those kinds of people that do not have the law of God in their hearts. They do not love God's law or treasure it. And these legalists in Crete, we read, like these Pharisees, are more concerned with the commands of men than they're concerned with the commands of God. That was last week. This week, Paul addresses another facet or another feature of this bad teaching in Crete. And he says this to Timothy, uh, to Titus, sorry, to the pure, all things are pure. Now, evidently, through this bad teaching, people were being taught that the essence of the Christian life consisted in avoiding certain non-moral things. Things that have nothing to do with morality in themselves, but are merely creaturely goods. Now, it could be here, and Calvin spends an awful lot of time exploring this, that there was in Crete a return to the ceremonial laws of the Old Testament, the laws of purity and impurity, which as God said to Peter in the book of Acts, these things, Peter, have been done away with in Christ. One of the great benefits of the gospel is that the pig is no longer impure. When I imagine that moment of Peter in that great vision as that great white sheet in the four corners descending from the heavens down to earth and the Lord speaking to Peter and all those various animals, I imagine the pig front and center just kind of prancing coyingly towards Peter and the Lord saying, rise, Peter, kill and Eat what God has made clean, do not call common. The gospel and bacon go together, right? The gospel and, and you can say a hallelujah now, right? The gospel and bacon go together. The ceremonial law has been done away with. Pork is clean now. The moral law has not been done away with. Adultery is not clean. 
Theft is not clean. Idolatry is not clean. And so in a definite sense, Paul is saying here, we must not go back to that ceremonial law. That's changed. To the pure in Christ, all these creaturely benefits are now pure. God has made them so for us in the gospel. But there's a secondary sense here that in this Cretan and syncretistic culture with elements of paganism creeping into the church, that a very definite doctrine of Gnosticism is corrupting the purity of the gospel. Gnosticism, that old heresy that's always been around, that distrust towards things material because they are material. The idea that to be spiritual, we must pull away from the material as far as we can. We see warnings of this already in John's epistles. We see it in the early asceticism of the church. We see it in forms of monasticism in the Middle Ages. We see it in forms of Anabaptism in the Reformation. We see it in the holiness movement of the 19th and 20th centuries. I remember very clearly teaching on the doctrine of total depravity in a large Pentecostal church in Toronto, one of its flagship churches. And a very lovely old lady came to me after my teaching. She said, I don't understand how I could be a sinner. I have never drank. I have never smoked. And I do not dance. And she was genuinely puzzled at how she could be a sinner. You see, it's always been a temptation to think that I'm most spiritual when I'm least material. But this competes against the reality of the Incarnation, that the most spiritual man ever to live was a material man. A man whose first miracle was to make wine for a wedding party. A man who was accused of being a glutton and a wine-bibber, accused of being a drunk because he loved to feast at people's houses and to enjoy raucous laughter over the goodness of God's world. Now, it's clear to me that we can misuse the creature. We can abuse the creature. The creature can stultify us. The creature can drug us. It can make us sleepy and drowsy to God. Drunkenness is bad. My brothers and sisters, drunkenness is a sin. It's an abuse of God's creation. Wine drinking is good by the Lord's own example. It was good for Noah to build a vineyard as Lamech, his father, prophesied. This child shall bring us relief, he says, from the ground that God has cursed. It was good for Noah to build the vineyard and become the father, the patriarch of winemaking. It was bad for Noah to get drunk. The command in Ephesians is not do not drink wine. It's not do not get drunk on wine. The command in 1 Timothy is not to avoid wine, but avoid drinking too much of it. You see, whenever we begin to define our spirituality by what we don't enjoy, with respect to the material world, I don't drink. I don't watch movies. I don't listen to rock and roll. Whenever we define ourselves like that, we slip into a form of Gnosticism for which the Lord has not destined us because He has called us to enjoy his good gifts. And so Paul says today to the pure, all things are pure. 
The redeemed in Christ above all other people should be those who delight in their father's creation. They say, this is my father's world. That's their song. They don't say it's the devil's world. It might be his playground, but it's not the devil's world. And the believer is enabled to see Christ in the goodness of God's gifts, and he or she hunts with insatiable appetite for divine pleasures to be had in the purity of these things. And Paul says to us, the ungodly, they don't experience this. For even though God in his kindness, he lavishes them with good and, and perfect gifts, Matthew 5.45, even so, because they don't acknowledge God as the giver, they miss the true goodness of the gift. They only get the pith. They don't get to the fruit. The believer gets it all. And so Paul says, for the unbeliever, nothing is pure. It can't be because they can't see God in the gift and their hearts can't be raised to God in the gift. Can you imagine a child on Christmas morning rifling through all her gifts, tearing them open one after another, never once raising her eyes to her parents? Never once letting a beam of gratitude dart towards her mother and father. Never once stopping to realize how much her parents love her. Never throwing herself into her parents' arms with an overwhelming joy that her parents are so much better than these gifts, but rather looking vaguely unsatisfied, sitting in a heap of torn and shredded paper, only being able to say, is that all? Is there nothing more? See, the Christian isn't like that. The Christian sees the purity of God radiating through the gift from somewhere and from someone that is altogether better than the gift that they're enjoying. This is the call to godliness, my brother and sister. We enjoy the world and we say, oh, what a father gives us these good gifts. And the enemy of our soul is deeply dismayed when enjoying the gifts of God's creation, we lift up our hearts and with great gratitude we say, you, O Lord, make known to me the path of life and at your right hand, O Lord, are pleasures forevermore. Whatever it is you're doing in this world, enjoying his gift, O Lord, at your right hand, there are pleasures and the devil gnashes his teeth. <laughs> it's the thing he hates to see. Now, Paul is not saying here that we should take this verse, carte blanche, as it were, to do anything we want to do. We cannot say to ourselves, to the pure, all things are pure, and then go watch an hour of pornography. I'll go further. We can't say to ourselves, to the pure, all things are pure, and watch some steamy sex scene on TV or in film. Doesn't work that way. Those things aren't pure and they never will be. In fact, you can often judge the quality of activity you're doing by asking yourselves, can this activity make me erupt in praise and in gratitude to the giver? The all things here that Paul refers to are the all things that God has made. God has made pigs. God has made the fermentation process. 
God has made sex. God has not made pornography. God has not made lustful exhibitionism. God has not made sexual or physical abuse. God has not made gluttony or drunkenness. And so with this verse today that commands all of God's many gifts to us, we have to remind ourselves that when we say to the pure, all things are pure, we also have to say to ourselves there are many things in this life that are impure. And the Apostle Paul tells us it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in private, not least to follow them and to imitate them in their shameful deeds. To the pure, my brother and sisters, all things are pure. And there are many things in this life that are impure, that you are not allowed to have any part of, according to the Apostle. Observe what a priceless privilege it is, writes Calvin, to be able to thank God with a quiet conscience, knowing that he wants us to enjoy his good gifts. And there are few places in this world where we can become so aware of God's approval of his material world as at the Lord's table. Here the Lord takes bread and he takes wine and he joins his presence to them. And he says, in these things, I give you myself. In these things, you can enjoy me. He says, I am the pleasure behind all pleasures. I am the sweetness, he says, behind all sweetness. I am the joy behind all joys. And so Christ says in the great day of the feast, all you who thirst, come to me and drink. And so I invite you today to the table of the Lord to taste and to see that the Lord is good and that he does indeed satisfy the hungry soul. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.